Take your Bible and open to Titus chapter 1. We're going to continue our, our study through the book of Titus over the next several weeks going through, through Easter. So we're continuing that process this morning in Titus chapter 1. If you are a guest or you've been with us for a couple of weeks now, maybe even a couple of months, and you just like to get a chance to meet the staff and hear some more about what's happening at Emmaus, this next week we have a, a free lunch coming up called Discover Emmaus, and we would love for you to be a part of that. If on that card in the seat back in front of you, if you would just write lunch, and write your name. It helps us to plan. You can put that in the offering plate or just send me an email and let me know. Some of you have already sent me an email. Let me know your family is going to be there for, for lunch coming up on that Discover Emmaus. But if you haven't signed up for that and you'd like to come, no obligation. You're not signing up for anything. It's just a chance to hear more about what's happening and be able to ask some questions. And so uh, Emmaus members, if you know people that would like to be a part of that, let us know and we'll, we'll make plans, uh, plans for them to be a part let me give you a, something that, that might be helpful in your own Bible study, in your own time of reading Scripture. I've been doing it sort of under the surface through this Titus uh, study, but I want to be more direct in something that might be helpful. If you like to take notes as you read Scripture, if you like to do some research and really dig into what's going on here in these different passages, one of the things that I do and, and I'll get some resources into your hand that might be helpful for this, but here's something that I do. Take a piece of paper and draw three columns or three areas on that paper, and what we're looking for when we look at Scripture is we're looking for theology, literature, history. And, and those are not meant to be completely separate categories. There's going to be overlap, but, but as I'm doing Bible study during the week and I'm thinking about understanding God's word and trying to make sense of this, I'm thinking about what does it teach us about God and about God's story of salvation that goes from the beginning of end to scripture, that unity of the Bible. Then we're looking for what type of literature am I reading? How do the words fit together? This is where I break into grammar nerd mode and you start to look at how these words fit together and how the phrases fit together. So you're looking for those literature pieces. What type of literature am I reading? And then history, you're thinking about what's the history of this passage? Where are we on the map? Where are we on the timeline? What kind of culture was there in the Bible? Because we're trying to understand how did these people understand the world? How did they relate to one another? And so we're trying to understand the history, the culture of, of that world. And so at the beginning of Titus, when we started this sermon series, we focused on those opening verses, really looking at the theology of the book. How does the good news of Jesus form the foundation for this book? Then the next couple of weeks, we transitioned to more of a focus on literature looking at how Paul gives the purpose for writing this letter and how he provides that foundation in the form of a letter. And then today we're going to look a little bit more at the history and the culture of the letter as Paul moves into these opponents that he's dealing with. And I, so, I know that's very under the surface and background, but I want it to be helpful to you because as we study God's Word together in worship on Sunday morning, I want that to be interconnected with how you're reading the Bible. As you pull in to work during the week and you've got two minutes to sit in the parking lot and open your Bible or open your phone and look at Scripture, what are you thinking about? What are you focusing on? If you're reading Scripture late at night before you go to bed, what are you thinking about? 
I use personally those categories of theology, literature, history, and it just gives my mind something to focus on, and then we try to do that on Sunday morning when we meet together. Um, So I hope that might be be helpful to you, and we'll come back around to that more more often as well. Titus, chapter one. Uh, Let's back up and start. Well, I tell you what, I don't think they're on the screen, but let's go ahead and back all the way up to verse one. And then whenever the verses on the screen catch up to where we are, throw those up there. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start at the very beginning. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. I'm writing this to Titus, my true, true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And then verse 9, one who holds fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Okay, very quickly, jumping back over, if you have a copy of the bulletin, you look on the back uh, on the notes section, what I've tried to do at the top is is lead you through those first nine verses. If this is your first time with us, if you need a refresher. So on the basis of the gospel, Paul lays out this foundation in verses one through three. And then Paul, we see how he invests in Timothy He's a mentor to Timothy. He commissions him to go on this journey to Crete and to work in these churches. Why? To set things in order at the beginning of verse 5. So something's in chaos. Titus needs to set it in order. How does he do that? By appointing elders. What kind of elders? Those who have a good reputation, verses 6 through 8. What kind of good reputation? Well, they're not only good in character, but they're able to instruct and correct. Verses 1 through 9. Why? Why does Titus need to do that? Verse 10. Why does he need to do this? For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This is the word of God. 
So my family, uh, when I was growing up, we really enjoyed going on vacation, especially to New Mexico and Colorado. We went summer, we went winter, winter to ski, summer to be able to fish or, or attempt to fish uh, and hike and do some things like that. So when I was in high school, we went to Colorado, uh, my immediate family, and then we took my mom's parents, my grandparents with us. We were driving down a road there in the mountains of Colorado, went off to the side, was a guy on his bike who was trying to flag down a car to stop and, and help him out. So my dad pulls over in the minivan, the Ford Windstar, uh, pulls over in the Ford Windstar to help this guy on his bike, and the guy says, hey, I need you to follow me down this road. We've had some problems down at the campsite. We can't get our car started. We need some help getting it started so we can get back to, to the main road. My dad said, sure, you know, we'll be able to, to do that. So we turn off the main road and we start to go down this side road following this guy on his bicycle to go to his campsite and help him. Uh, we go down the road and the guy takes off really fast on, on his bike, much faster than we would be able to, to keep up with him on a side road in the Windstar. And so he gets out in front of us can't see him anymore. We're going down this one-lane road off the side of the main road, at which point my grandmother, who has read way too many Reader's Digest articles uh, at this point, starts to come up with some ideas about what is going to happen to us if we continue to follow this man on his bike down this one-lane road off the main road down the side of the mountain. So my dad is trying to figure out what to do. You can tell he's torn. Does he continue to go and help this person who has car trouble at their not-yet-seen campsite off the side of the road? My grandma's starting to panic a little bit. My mom is caught between her husband and her mom. Like, what do I do at this point? So my dad, to his credit, pulls a pretty impressive three-point turn on a one lane dirt road on the side of a mountain in Colorado, turns the Windstar around, goes back the other way, and my grandma uses the rest of the trip to let us know all the options of what might have happened to us had we continued to follow the man on the bike down the side of the road uh, to his unforeseen campground. Those people are probably still stuck at their campground with their broken down car because we didn't go and help them out, but we weren't taking a chance to figure out where that, load, where that road led. Paul here with the churches in Crete, he's dealing with a group of churches who are in danger of turning off the main road to follow a guy on his bike, leading down a road that they don't know where it's going to lead, presumably for good reasons, but Paul knows where the road leads is not good. And so he sends Titus there, and he says, you've got to put some people in leadership who are going to keep them on the right road. Because if they turn off this road and they start venturing this direction, the end is not good. You do not want to go that way. There's a danger here in this letter that Paul is dealing with when he writes to Titus. There's a danger of false teaching that's beginning to come in to the church. And so from the very beginning, we have to ask the question, is Paul just overreacting here? Why is he so upset about this false teaching? Why does he tell Titus, you've got to put church leaders in place to stop this, to set things in order so these false teachers don't gain ground? And remember, we're not talking about false teachers gaining ground in a church of 600 people. We're talking about false teachers gaining ground in a church of probably 30 or 40 people, where they're coming in and infiltrating it and, and going to lead the church off the side of the mountain following the guy on the bicycle. 
why is he so worried about this? Is he overreacting? The reason Paul reacts so strongly is because it's not just that the false teachers are coming in with some other ideas. They're trying to undermine the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to bring people to himself, to bring people to life, to bring people to be a part of the people of God. They're undermining that. And that's the reason Paul reacts so strongly. We have that foundation at the beginning of Titus where he lays out, this is the theology, this is what we're standing on, and these false teachers are coming in to undermine that, so Paul knows he has to stop it. One of the things we struggle with in our culture is either you have people who fight over everything. Everything's a huge battle, and you're always battling over other things, or you go to the other side of the pendulum and this idea that everything's right and there's nothing worth fighting on, just let everybody agree about everything and everything's gonna be okay. On one side, it's true we don't battle over everything. There are some issues that are primary, some issues that are secondary. There's some things worth arguing over and some things not worth arguing over. Equally though, we can't go to this extreme and say, I'll just let everybody believe whatever they want, it won't be that big a deal. Because Paul knows if you go that direction, then you allow people to come in and completely undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. To do what they say happens in Galatians where someone comes in and preaches a different gospel that's not really the gospel. And so the reason Paul reacts so strongly is because he knows that the message of the good news of Jesus is at stake here. So what does he say has to happen? In verse 11, he says these people must be silenced. The word here, it's kind of a crazy word picture, but it's almost like the idea of a muzzle. He's saying these people have to be silenced. They can't be allowed to continue to teach these things there in verse 11. In verse 13, Paul says to reprove them severely. Or some people will say to, or some translations will say to, to rebuke them sharply. It's the idea of just cut it off completely. Don't let them continue at all. Cut off this teaching so it doesn't keep going. You can't allow it to linger. It's got to be stopped here. And this word severely, this word sharply, it, it makes us think about what was the tone that Paul was using? Was he angry? Was he urgent? What was he doing here? It reminds us that sometimes you have to deal gently with people when they're going off the side of the mountain following the guy on the bicycle. Sometimes a gentle rebuke is necessary. And sometimes you need your mother-in-law to yell at you and say, don't go that way, it's really dangerous. And what's hard to tell is when do you go the gentle route with someone and when do you go the sharp, severe route with someone? There's a quote from a guy named Chrysostom who was a preacher, theologian in the early church. His uh, homily, his sermon on, on the book of Titus, he talks about as he who treats with harshness the meek and ingenious may destroy them. In other words, there are some people who are meek and if you beat them down, if you kick them at the wrong time, you're going to completely destroy that person. That person needs a gentle word. They need a gentle rebuke at that time. At the same time, so he who flatters one that requires severity causes him to perish. There's a time to be gentle. There's a time to say, you know what, we can deal with this in a very caring sort of way. And then there's a time that you just have to be sharp and severe and direct and not flatter, not play around, just cut straight to the chase. 
That's what Paul is dealing with here in the book of Titus. What kind of false teaching, though? What kind of false teaching are we, are we talking about? There are three dangers that I listed on, on your notes there. Who is Paul so concerned about? If you go back to the beginning of verse 10, there's kind of three descriptions. Rebellious, empty talkers, and deceivers. We're going to deal with each of those by looking at some different verses. Let's start in verse 12, actually. So we're going to talk about the rebellious people. These are the people, these are the teachers who are saying, do as I say, not as I do. In other words, they're teaching with their words, but their actions are leading somewhere else. Verse 12, Paul says, one of themselves, so a a Cretan philosopher and prophet known as Epimenides, this prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, hey, (laughs) that sums it up right there. That's a very endearing way to describe your own people. They are liars, evil beasts, lazy lazy gluttons. And then Paul goes on in verse 13 at the beginning and just says, hey, that's true. (laughs) That's pretty much what I've observed, that that's how the people act. Down in verse 16, verse 16, if you're a Bible underliner or highlighter, verse 16 is the hinge of the book of Titus. It's the turning point for the book of Titus. So if you're looking for the turning point, verse 16, they profess to know God. So with their mouth, they say, yeah, we believe in God. We follow God. We believe the gospel. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So this first description is we have a group of people that are rebellious. In other words, don't miss this, they are the opposite of the descriptions in verses six through eight. So Paul gave the descriptions of the character of the people that he wanted in leadership in verses six through eight. These people that he's describing here as the false teachers represent the opposite. Why did he need teachers of good character? Because the false teachers had bad character. They were living lives that did not point people to Jesus Christ, did not point people to the gospel. They're reflecting their culture. So what do we know about the Cretans? What do we know about this group of people? I put some uh, descriptions up there. One, and this is, not, this is not biblical literature, this is other ancient literature that describes the people that lived on the island of Crete. They had the reputation for loving money. This island was actually famous for hiding pirates and robbers who were looking for a place of protection. They would come to Crete these ancient uh, historians tell us they would come there as a place of safety because the Cretans love dishonest gain. Well, one of the things that Paul is dealing with here are teachers who are trying to earn a living in a dishonest way. And so he's very direct about that because this is the culture of the people. Supposedly, supposedly, uh, an ancient historian named Pliny tells us that there were no wild animals on Crete because the people were so wild. Uh, so there were no wild animals there because you didn't need wild animals. You just had the Cretans that, that filled that, that role. The verbal form of the word Crete in the ancient language actually means to lie. So when you talked about being a Cretan, you were known as a person who lied, a person that couldn't be trusted. And they were known as liars especially because they claimed to have the tomb of Zeus. Now, If you know a little bit about ancient mythology, you know why that's such a dumb idea. That Zeus, as a part of the ancient pantheon of gods, would not have a tomb. 
how could Zeus have a tomb? It made no sense. But the Cretans claimed that if you wanted to see the tomb of Zeus, you would come there to their island and you could see it. And everybody in the ancient world knew that that was just the most overt, dumb lie possible. And so these are people who are known for dishonest gain. There are people known for wild, out-of-control behavior. And there are people known for lying at every opportunity. And these are the people who are moving into leadership of the churches that Paul's establishing here. And we see, all of a sudden, why it's such a big deal that in verses 6 through 8, he lays out these qualities and says, that's not the people we need representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need people whose lives have been transformed. Not those that reflect the culture they're coming from, but those that reflect transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first danger is that these teachers would stand up and say, do as I say, not as I do. The second danger that we deal with in the book of Titus with these false teachers is the idea of an empty talker. The idea of somebody would say something, but it has no, no foundation. Look in verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, Paul says, For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths. This idea of Jewish myths, you can read some more about it in 1 Timothy. You can also find it in, in the book of Colossians. So not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Back in first, uh, verse 10, Paul calls these false teachers, he says they're part of the circumcision or part of the circumcision party, which is a way of referring to them as Jewish people who have not fully understood the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. Let's deal with something really quickly up front. Sometimes the Bible is used or portrayed as anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Jewish, which is always strange because Jesus and Paul were both Jews. They were people leading the Jewish people to understand fully what it meant to be a Jewish person, that all of God's promises to his people had come true in Jesus Christ. And so when the Bible is used in an anti-Semitic way, we know that that's going contrary to the message of the Messiah, the message of God's scriptures coming to, to fulfillment. But there were also groups of Jewish people that didn't like the idea of Jesus as the Messiah, especially the form of Messiahship that he brought. And so they would come in with different ideas, different gospels. Here's where it can get confusing in the New Testament, so stay with me just for a second. In the New Testament, you have two types of false teaching that were put forward by Jewish opponents of Jesus, okay? You have a form that shows up in Romans and Galatians. This is the form where the Jewish teachers were trying to lead the people to say you have to obey the law in order to be made right with God. So they were emphasizing circumcision. They were emphasizing obedience to the Mosaic law, to, to the Old Testament law. They were putting their focus there on the covenant people. And so you have the Romans and Galatians opponents that Paul fought. So he fought them with one hand. And then on the other hand, you have Paul's Jewish opponents who show up in 1 Timothy, Colossians, and Titus. These opponents come along, and they're not so much focused on obeying the Mosaic law. What they're focusing on is they're focusing on these Jewish myths and legends that developed. Here's how that happened. So you go to the Old Testament, and there's parts of the Old Testament that are called genealogies. 
These are the long list of names that you skip when you're trying to read through the Bible. Uh, so you come to these passages and you want to be a spiritual person and you want to love the word of God and you say, I know I'm supposed to read these names, but number one, I can't pronounce them. And number two, it's just a boring list of names. And so you just kind of skip over those and move to whatever comes next. There was a group of people that came along and they would select figures from those ancient genealogies, just random people from those Old Testament lists, and they would develop stories about them. They would develop myths and legends about these people. And not only would they develop stories and myths, but they would say that these stories held certain spiritual power. And if you wanted to be spiritual, if you wanted to move to a higher level of knowledge, a higher level of spirituality, then you needed to have access to these myths, to these stories that were being told. On top of that, if you really wanted access to those stories, you were going to pay for it. You were going to pay to get access to this secret knowledge, to this secret stories that would allow you to progress in your spiritual life. And Paul comes along and says, no, that's a complete misunderstanding of the Old Testament. That's a complete misunderstanding of what it means to know God and to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can't be carried away by these stories. You can't be carried away by all of this false knowledge that's just speculation. It's not the word of God. It's people making up stories to try to force you to pay them to gain access to this secret knowledge. If it sounds a little bit, and, and I obviously don't know everybody's background, so I want to step really carefully here, but, but if it sounds a little bit like modern day life, you're, you're getting reflections of something like Scientology probably here, the idea that you would pay to gain access to higher levels of spirituality, to other knowledge that will allow you to progress in, in your faith. And Paul says it's dangerous. It's not how God's word is presented. So that's the second danger. The third is that the people were being deceived about what it means to really be pure. You can see in verse 15 that Paul starts to talk about this idea of, of purity. End of verse 14, I guess he gets into it. The end of verse 14, he talks about not holding on to the commandments of men, specifically the commandments given by humans, not by God, who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So you have a group of teachers who have come into this little church of 30 or 40 people probably. They've come in and they're wild. <laughs> They've shown signs of being liars. They've shown signs of being money hungry. They're acting like the culture around them. Paul says that's dangerous. They show up with these stories, these other knowledge that the people don't have access to, and the people think, man, we need that knowledge if we're really gonna be spiritual, so they have to start giving into that. Then on top of that, these teachers come, and they start laying out these other purity rituals, and they say, if you really wanna be pure, if you wanna be clean, if you wanna be spiritually right with God, then you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be pure in order to be made right with God. So they had all these rituals, they had these commandments of men that were put forward. If you want a background on this, um, and I know, I think some of our Sunday school classes are looking at the book of Mark. If you want the background on this, this is Mark chapter seven, starting to develop itself in, in the early church. But you have these ideas, these rules that were put forward that you had to do this in order to be 
pure. And Paul comes along and says, that's not how you're made pure. The way you're made clean, the way you're made right with God is through Jesus Christ, not by following all these rituals that are laid out there for you. So the teachers were living lives that didn't represent the gospel. They were making up extra stories that provided secret knowledge, and then they were saying you have to follow these rituals in order to be made right with God. As a little aside, on your notes, this has been extremely helpful to me, um, and I'll probably mention this hundreds of times <laughs> as, as we go forward in, in the future. I didn't make this up. I borrowed this from one of our professors at New Orleans who borrowed it from another guy that has a ministry in Fort Worth, and he probably borrowed it from somebody else. Um, but when you're thinking about how do I recognize false teaching, how do I recognize when something is leading me away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? You have a great description in the book of Titus that we just walked through. But I love this pattern because it's easy to remember and it uses the four primary math uh, formulas. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Anything that adds to scripture. Anytime somebody comes along and says, you need this secret knowledge, you need this additional information, you need this additional book in addition to scripture, that's a sign of danger. Be very careful at that point. Anything that subtracts from Christ, that makes Jesus Christ less than God with us, less than divine, anything that subtracts from Christ as God with us is very dangerous. Especially if someone comes in and says, I'm Christ. We'll be really concerned uh, at that point. But anything that adds to scripture, anything that subtracts from Christ, Anything that multiplies the requirements for salvation. So in order to be made pure, in order to be saved, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll really be pure. Then you'll be made right with God. Very dangerous. Don't go down that road. You're starting to see that develop in the book of Titus. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Anything that divides the body of Christ, where they say, if you really want to see the Holy Spirit at work, or you really want to be a place where the Word of God is presented, if you really want to, then you're only going to meet with our little group. And if you start to be cut off from the larger body of Christ, especially by a teacher that says, only listen to me and nobody else, that's a sign of danger. Because they're trying to accrue power and control to themselves, as opposed to God's Word working among God's people in different places. So anything that adds to scripture, anything that subtracts from Christ, anything that multiplies the requirements for salvation, and anything that tries to divide up the body of Christ is a sign of danger, a sign of false teaching coming in to the church. And so the first three points that I gave you were a way for us to understand the book of Titus. That's kind of a broader category that's really easy to understand. You can write that down, hold on to that. We forget almost everything, but that thing has stuck with me all, all these years. It's been, it's been really helpful, especially when a friend or a family member comes up to you and says, hey, I'm attending this other group, and we're talking about this, and some flag goes up in your mind about, ooh, that doesn't sound quite right. These are good categories to go back to and begin, and begin to think about. Okay, that's the negative side. Let's wrap up with the positive side. What are the positive signs of a healthy church? So there's a danger of false teaching, there's a danger of being led astray, but what does it look like when you don't follow the bicycle down the hill and you stay on the main route? Where does that lead you? 
Four things on your notes, and we'll wrap up with these. What does it look like to be a part of a healthy church? Number one, trust in God's word, not seeking new revelation all the time. God has made himself known to us through scripture. If you show up to a church or you hear someone speak about the Bible and they say something like, you won't hear this anywhere else, run away as quickly as you can. That's not what, we're not looking for ingenuity. We're not looking for new ideas. Now, if somebody says, hey, you may not have thought about this before, that's great. That's a good thing. I hope you go away some Sundays at least and think, hey, I didn't think about that way before or I'd never seen that part. That's good. If somebody comes up and says, hey, I made this up, or you won't find this anywhere else, or this isn't the Bible, but God really needs me to tell you this, that's a sign of caution. Trust in God's word. Sometimes I worry, and we talked about this in, in Sunday school a little bit, the group I was a part of this morning. Sometimes I worry that when we leave the word of God to chase after other ideas or other forms of spirituality, uh, sometimes we do it just because we get bored and we start chasing something different and everything looks greener on the other side of the fence and so you're like, oh, that spiritual idea looks good and so I'll chase it down for a while and I'll chase this idea for a while and it's because we haven't found ourselves truly grounded in the word of God. So if we trust God's word to transform our lives and we're not always seeking something new, it provides the foundation for a healthy Christian life. Number two, we are made pure in Christ And so we're not always striving to be more religious. And I use the word religious there on purpose. I don't have to do this religious rite, this religious ritual in order to be made pure. I'm made pure in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're still uncertain about this whole Christian thing, you've got a lot of respect from Jesus, you've got a lot of respect for Jesus, but you're not sure about following him and you've stuck with me this long, don't miss how radical this point is. That the message of the gospel is that we are made right. We are made whole. We are put back together. We are able to live the life that God created us to live purely because of the victory we have through Jesus. Not because of anything we bring to the table. Not because of your ability to get your life together on your own. Not because of your ability to do this and this and this and prove your love for God. It is radical, transforming grace. And no matter how long we live, we should never, ever, ever grow cold to that fact. That we are transformed, that we are made new because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That doesn't mean we step back and say, well, now I'll do whatever I want to with my life. It's transforming grace. Saving grace is always transforming grace. But we stand in awe of the fact that it is because of Jesus. And so if you're here and you're not especially impressed by religion and you're not especially impressed by church, that is probably a good thing. But I hope that you would be drawn to the grace of Jesus Christ. I hope that you would see who he is and what he's done for your life and that you would repent and turn to him because that is how we're made pure. And when that happens, it leads to the next point on your notes. We're able to receive God's gifts as good, not rejecting or abusing these things. One of the things that the false teachers were doing in Titus, or on doing in Crete, that Titus has to deal with, is they were coming along and they were saying, this food, eh, it's impure. It's got to be pushed to the side. Marriage, sexual relationships, 
impure. You, you don't need to be married anymore. It says earlier in these verses we looked at that these false teachers were upsetting families. One of the ways they were doing it is they were coming along and saying marriage and sex are completely impure. They shouldn't be taken a part of. And so you need to divorce your spouse and just come and be a part of our church because marriage isn't a good gift of God. And Paul comes along and says, God has given us all of these gifts, and because of the transforming power of Jesus, we can receive them as good. It doesn't mean we abuse them. It doesn't mean we use them for our own good, but it means we receive them as good. When Jesus transforms our life, we don't run away from the world. We're able to engage fully with the world that God has created. We're engaged to live the life that God has called us to live, which leads to number four, and finally in your notes. Good deeds based on true faith, not unproductive living. If we truly understand what it is to trust in God's word, to be made pure in life, to live fully the life that God has created us to live, then we're gonna have faith that leads to good deeds. I mentioned verse 16 earlier. The danger of these false teachers is that they would lead lives that were not productive that didn't lead to the good deeds that God had called them to lead. But when we truly understand what it is to be transformed by Jesus, the result of that will be doing things that God wants us to do, that he's created us to do. So what's the word this morning? Don't follow the bicycle off the hill. Don't follow false teaching that leads you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church be people that base our lives on the gospel, that base our lives on the word of God. Here's how I want us to be able to respond to that together this morning. If you would stand with me, we're going to read scripture together responsively this morning. I want you to read some verses with me that engage our hearts and our minds with what we talked about this morning, that we would be able to participate together in God's word, and then I'm going to pray for us, and after I pray for us, we're going to sing the song that's probably going to sound new to many of you, and we always want to pay attention to the words in Psalms, but especially this morning during the response time, to pay attention to these words that follow from the scripture that we studied together this morning. During that final song, if you need someone to pray with you, I'd be honored to be able to do that. We have people at the front to pray for you. If you just need to come to the front and pray by yourself, you're able to do that. We're going to read these final verses, though, together. Um, I'm going to read the verses at the top that are in italics. If you'll read the verses that are in the bottom in bold. This is the beginning of Psalm 119. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. Then in verse five, oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. And then in verses seven and eight, as I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Father, we know that we are consistently tempted to wonder. We're consistently tempted to go off in other directions. 
And Father, I pray that we can come together this morning in worship. We would come together before your word. And Father, that my words this morning would not come across as controlling, would not come across as condemning, but God, that we would see the hope of the gospel. That you are so good and so loving and so powerful that we would not search after anything else. But God, we would give ourselves fully to you to live the lives that you've created us to live. God, that we would hear your word, we would hear you speaking to us, and we would respond in faith and worship and obedience, Father. And let us do that together as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.